In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor What it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Meditations in Molotovs with your host, Vince Emanuele, on the Progressive Radio Network. You can find us at prn.fm. And this show, as it stands right now, will be on every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's 1 o'clock Central Standard Time and 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So, thanks for joining us. It's good to be back on the air. You can also call in live at 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888 for the call-in live number. It's good to be back on the radio. It's been a long time since I've been on the radio. Man, I'm thinking probably back... Well, I was on the radio here in Michigan City, Indiana, where we are broadcasting from, where I am broadcasting from. And this is where I currently live for most of the year, if I'm not traveling or if I'm not spending time overseas. And the last time I had a radio program, it lasted for about three years. It was an awesome uh, program called Veterans Unplugged. Originally started with a good friend of mine, Mark Strudis. And that sort of, you know, a lot of things led up into that point. And so for those of you who are listening today who already know me, already know my personal background, already know where I'm coming from, or maybe you think you know where I'm coming from politically, ideologically, etc. Um, you know, some of what I'm going to run over today, uh, it might be a repeat of things you've heard in the past, because I would like to tell people about my personal background. Uh, those who are listening who don't know me or who have never heard any of this, I think it'll, you know, I think it's important to connect on this personal level. I think all too often politically, you know, and I've noticed this working with several progressive political movements throughout the country and indeed throughout the world, you know, people are often impersonal. You see each other at events, uh, you see each other at a direct action or at a rally or a protest, and people shake hands, they might say a few words to each other, and then they go home and they go about their business. Maybe you make a couple contacts with some of those people, and out of the people you make contacts with, maybe a few of them you can actually talk on a very serious and deep personal level with. And that's what I hope to do uh, with this program. Now, I'm going to tell you a lot about myself. I'm going to tell you a lot about what I'm struggling with uh, intellectually, socially, culturally, politically. Um, and I want to hear the same from you. You know, I don't want this to sound like another prepackaged um, NPR program. You know, there was just a recent article. I, my friend Dar Jamail posted it on Facebook, and he was sort of talking about how people on NPR don't sound like people. You know, they sort of sound like robots in a lot of ways. And, you know, with this format, it's nice. I mean, the, the, the gentleman I've spoken to here at PRN, Jason, has sort of, you know, ran me up on how this works. My, my program before was on community radio, so you had to watch your language. There were breaks every 15 minutes for commercials. 
we don't have to deal with any of that here. Of course, we're not going to be swearing off the handle nonstop, but I want people to call in and talk as they normally talk. I want my guests to talk as they would normally talk. And I want this program to be accessible to people outside of the sort of traditional progressive spheres. You know, I don't want, I don't want to be talking constantly to the choir. That gets a little old. It gets old in the activist world. It gets old with my writings and the emails I receive from them uh, or as a response to some of those writings. And it, get, it got old, you know, to be honest with you, the last time I was on the radio. Uh, I felt like a, some of what I was trying to do was a little too focused. You know, we were having uh, people like David Harvey on for an hour and a half, two hours uh, at a time. Now, here the format is one-hour program, and I am more than happy and pleased to be on for that hour. So we're going to try and fit as much as we can into that hour. And I'm when I do have guests on, you know, I would like to talk to them uh, for maybe a half hour to 45 minutes, allow them to explain themselves uh, what sort of interests they have, uh, how they came to uh, being you know, involved in whatever it is they're involved with. And it won't just be political activists that I'm speaking with. You know, I'll be interviewing anthropologists, philosophers, economists, artists, uh, musicians, uh, and people that no one has ever heard of, people you can't find on Google. Um, I think, to me, this is what's interesting. Uh, the, there's so many voices out there right now and what I've found is that there are interesting voices no matter where you go, whether that be a small town in northwest Indiana or whether that be Los Angeles, California or Sydney, Australia. There are interesting people doing interesting things on multiple levels, and we're going to explore a lot of that with this program. Of course, it's going to have a political bent. The name of the program is Meditations and Molotovs, and I've already heard great feedback online today about the title. So how did this, the title come about? Well, it's it's sort of describing what I was trying to do with the last radio program I had. And that was to bring together, you know, thought, ideology, philosophy, big ideas, some of them very complex ideas, and combine that with action. You know, so what are people doing on the ground? So, okay, so say the idea is our culture is becoming sort of mundane and banal. Okay, so what does that mean on the ground? What are people doing? That would be the meditation would be on culture. You know, what is culture? What does it mean? How does it play a role in our lives? How does it help inform our politics, our morals, our ethics? And then if people are saying that that culture is banal, which I would argue the dominant culture is, then I was interested in talking about sort of the Molotov aspect to this, the action, the explosion. You know, what, is, what does that look like? For people, you know, what kind of creative spaces are, are people creating? What kind of um, creative outlets are people transforming? What kind of creative outlets are people developing? You know, that's the action part. And I find this to be a problem on the left uh, that there is a big disconnect between the activists I know and the people who are on the ground creating that culture, a culture of resistance, but a culture of speaking truth to power a culture of people breaking out of the sort of society's norms, the cultural norms, the economic norms, the social norms that we find ourselves in. You know, I'm interested in talking with the people who are on the ground making it happen, but also in speaking with people. And I have multiple friends, you know, some people are philosophers, some of my friends are authors, some of them are documentary filmmakers. 
and oftentimes, and especially I would argue for my friends who are, say, college professors or so forth, yes, they get their 45 minutes with their kids in class, but, you know, it's usually too short and they don't really get to make a, a, you know, I think a serious connection with a lot of the students. And what they'll always sort of argue, or even if you read, you know, progressive outlets, and I'm not bashing any of them, I'm simply saying that a lot of the people who are writing for these outlets, you know, they're very isolated, you know, there are people who are sort of sitting at home, coming up with great ideas, and oftentimes, unfortunately, these great ideas are sort of disconnected from what people on the ground are doing. And in, and the flip side to that is that many of the people who are on the ground doing a lot of the real nitty-gritty work of activism oftentimes aren't writing about their experiences. You know, they're not theorizing uh, what change would look like in the future. What sort of ideologies are we operating under? What sort of society are we looking to create? You know, I hear tons and tons and tons of critiques from the left. All of them awesome. I mean, you have people ranging from Chris Hedges to David Harvey to Naomi Klein to Derek Jensen to Vandana Shiva to Francis Fox Piven to Noam Chomsky and everybody and everything in between. You know, Cornell West, Michelle Alexander, you could go on and on and on. There's tons of people who are doing really interesting work on the left. What I don't see as much of on the left is taking those critiques, combining them with not – so not only, you know, say single-issue campaigns. Like say we have a critique of the Keystone XL pipeline. Okay, great. So we're going to be opposed to the Keystone XL pipeline. That's excellent. Groups like Greenpeace and 350.org, some of the major NGOs have been involved with that work. But then also primarily – uh, you know, frontline activists, indigenous communities, farmers, ranchers, progressives who've been on the ground putting their bodies on the line to stop those kinds of projects. All of that is awesome. And in fact, it's about 150 times better than whatever people are doing at home if they're not doing anything, you know, just kind of sitting around, you know, um, watching TV, watching the same Netflix uh, TV sitcoms, whatever it is people are doing, you know, the people who are out there, I think, deserve a tremendous amount of credit. So I should just preface everything I say by saying that. Now, after that, and because I've been a part of that community for going on 10 years now, I feel like it's our job and I feel like it's our duty, especially those of us who've been involved for some time now, to be very critical of the movement and of the movements, to be very critical of what actions we're taking, what actions we're not taking, and where we're going in the future. So, of course, it's amazing that the environmental movement has had the success it's had, say, with regard to the Keystone XL pipeline. But as many people have mentioned, while that battle was taking place, there was a pipeline system throughout the Midwest, the Enbridge pipeline, which also crosses straight through the county that I live in and spilled over a million gallons of oil in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is only a couple-hour drive from where I live. That was being put in place at the same time that we stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. Okay, what are sort of the limitations to issue-based campaigns? You know, what's the ideology of some of the groups that are opposed to pipelines, say opposed to tar sands or opposed to projects like fracking and so forth? What is their ideology? Is it – are we just simply – in opposition to these things? Are we just offering real simple solutions without asking questions? You know, so from the environmental perspective or keeping in the same line with what we were talking about, you know, 
I think someone like Derek Jensen has very interesting things to say about green energy. You know, so do we want the exact same political system that we have now, but just with green energy? You know, we want a capitalist system. We want bosses on the top, workers on the bottom, professional class in the middle, a managerial class, and so forth. Do we want private corporations? Uh, do we want things like private property? Uh, are we going to continue to have police forces? Are we going to continue to have an empire? For those of you who are listening who live in the United States, you know, those are the questions we have to ask. And then even more specifically, I think as someone like Jensen would argue uh, with regard to, to green energy, where are those materials coming from? Solar photovoltaic lenses do not just grow on trees. They also require massive processes, not only from distribution, but from the actual point of extraction and the ecological damage that is done there all the way through the the, the uh part where those sort of technologies would be distributed to the point where they're purchased. What is their lifespan? You know, like how long are they going to last people? And then what do we do with them afterwards? I mean, these are major questions that we have to ask before we just give simplistic answers to people like, oh, fracking is bad. Of course it is. Tar sands are terrible. Of course they are. We should stop using fossil fuels as much as we can possibly do. Of course we should. But what comes next? And what kind of society do we want to see come next? You know, or, I mean, in, in, for me, you know, I'm looking to drastically change society. I didn't get involved, and this will be finally getting to some of that personal background I was saying I wanted to talk about. But, you know, I, I mean, I grew up on the southeast side of Chicago as a child. My father was a union iron worker. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. You know, most of my family members worked in the steel mills. They were all union workers. They worked on the railroads. My grandfather worked on the railroads. Um, you know, three quarters of my family is are immigrants from Italy, and my mother's father, his family comes from uh, Croatia, and they're Croatian. And they, they're all immigrant workers. All joined unions, and some of whom, including my great grandfather, you know, saw extremely horrific union events. Uh, like the Memorial Day Massacre here in, the, in uh, Chicago in 1937, as several people were murdered. Uh, several people were shot and injured uh, by the Chicago police. One of my uh, dad's friends, a good friend of the family, uh, recalled a story in a local book that was published about the southeast side of Chicago that the Chicago police stuck a gun in his mouth and asked him whether or not he was a member of the Communist Party. You know, that's the sort of blue-collar background. That's the sort of class analysis that I was raised with. Now, I'm not going to uh, lie to you and say that I was raised with some amazing progressive ideals. I mean, I think my parents did as good as they could. Um, I don't criticize them particularly for their views or anything. I mean, they've always been willing to listen to me. They've learned from me over the years as I've learned from them. But I did grow up in a household where it was very clear that working people and poor people should be taken care of. So my dad's class politics were always very clear. And, and the politics sort of surrounding class in my entire family and in the neighborhood were very clear. It was like, okay, the bosses are pieces of shit. These people and the systems that we're living in, these corporations and so on, they will take advantage of you. And they are taking advantage of you. 
And the only way to stand up for that or stand up against that and to stand up for something different is if you organize with your friends and family and neighbors. That much I knew as a young kid. I understood at least that much. You know, the other side to that, though, is coming from a blue-collar, working-class immigrant background, almost every single male in my family has served in the military. Military. So my brother served in the Coast Guard. He was in Afghanistan, Somalia, and several other countries. He was with the Special Operations Unit in the Coast Guard. My father served during Vietnam in the Army. My grandfather served in World War II, uh, landed in Anzio Beachhead, spent 36 months in combat, received two Purple Hearts, uh, both with V's for Valor. Um, quite an amazing sort of story, his story coming to the country, you know, and, and coincidentally enough, escaping fascism. I mean, imagine that. So I joke with people today and I say, you know, I could very well be leaving the country and going somewhere else in the next four to eight years if uh, Trump gets elected because I'm going to run away from the fascists, you know, and it's not you know, out of my out of the ordinary for someone on my family to get on a boat or an airplane and decide that they're going to set up roots somewhere else. Now, I actually won't do that. That's, you know, just kind of a joke for people who know me. But I mean, I, I, I think it's very important for people who have decent politics, particularly those who live in the belly of the U.S. empire, to stay here in the empire and to resist. I think we need as many brains as possible, and I think we need as many people with good values to stay here as possible. You know, that being said, my family eventually moved when I was, uh, geez, what grade was I in? Fourth or fifth grade, I, I think. We moved to northwest Indiana, where I still reside. Still a Midwestern Rust Belt area, um, diverse but extremely segregated, as is Chicago, which is considered the most segregated uh, city in the United States. Our region is extremely segregated. You know, people who visit me from abroad are particularly taken aback um, by the segregation that exists in this region. And really, to be honest with you, a lot of my friends who visit from other parts of the country, they come here and they say, my God, this place is destroyed. And it really is destroyed. For people who know, you know, the south side of Chicago, the 10th Ward, the southeast side, Lake County, parts of Porter County, large sections of LaPorte County in northwest India, these areas are completely devastated. You know, and it's not much different than what's happening in other Rust Belt towns. You know, so if you took somebody who came from Milwaukee or Peoria or Detroit or Flint, Michigan or Cleveland or Youngstown, Ohio or Ferguson or let's say Buffalo, New York, you know, people would come from those areas. They would see what's happening here and they would immediately recognize it. People who come from other portions of the country have had a very difficult time coming here and understanding exactly what's happening in the American Rust Belt. You know, not only extreme segregation, extreme violence. Just this weekend, we had 33 people shot in Chicago. Just this weekend, and it wasn't even that warm this weekend. It's only in the 60s. When it hits the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we will see what we saw last summer, and even worse, because now the city of Chicago is on pace to break, I think, what was the, uh, the, the rates of people murdered in the city in 1999, which was a horrific year in the city of Chicago. So we're on pace in the city of Chicago to break that, those numbers. 
and it's not that much different in Northwest Indiana, where people are disproportionately addicted to drugs, disproportionately addicted to alcohol, which is, of course, a drug, uh, disproportionately addicted to pharmaceuticals, and the heroin epidemic is through the roof here. Um, I didn't know that many people when I was younger who were doing heroin. My brother, who graduated high school four years after me, knows probably a dozen people who either have a heroin problem, had a heroin problem, or died from heroin use. This is a major issue in the region that I live in. And so all of this informed my decision at 18 years old, you know, or I guess 17 at the time, to sign up for the Marine Corps. You know, my options were pretty limited. And what did I want to do? Did I really want to go work in the steel mills like my father and my uncles and so on? Is there anything wrong with that job? No, there's nothing inherently wrong with that job. And as, you know, as a matter of fact, I give people tremendous credit who are willing to do those jobs. Uh, but, you know, what I also saw was the downside to that. So, yes, it's a union job. Yes, it pays well. But, you know, it was like all the people I knew who are my father's friends, they were beat up. I mean, you know, and that both physically and mentally and emotional, emotionally. You know, that job takes a lot out of you. You know, so these guys were, you know, limping around, arthritis, constantly hurt and, and or as my father eventually was hurt on the job site, broke his neck, his back, had, I think, three neck surgeries, several spinal surgeries, reconstructive surgery on his shoulder, on his hips. I mean, he really was uh, truly mangled from when he fell. Uh, and I think that was in 1994, 95. So I saw that, you know, and had that experience, you know, saw my dad get injured from the job site, his friends who were injured, many of whom were heavy drinkers and so on. And I, that didn't really appeal to me. And, you know, <laughs> through no fault of anyone else's, I was, uh, you know, sort of a screw up in school. I didn't really care. I mean, I, I wasn't political, didn't care about politics, didn't care about academia, um, didn't really bother with my intellectual side. And in hindsight, I wish that would have been different. But, you know, I guess the positive to that is that I, I wasn't really inundated with any kind of ideology. You know, since I didn't pay attention in history class, there was nothing to unlearn once I actually woke up, you know, which was when I was in the Marine Corps and when I was sent to war. But, you know, backing up, I didn't, you know, I really didn't have to unlearn anything. I didn't pay much attention in high school. I mean, my high school was, my high school experience, my overall school experience as an adolescent and as a teenager in, in Northwest Indiana was akin to the movie Dazed and Confused. I mean, that's what my experience in school was. I mean, we were skipping class. We were smoking dope. We were, you know, having drinks, going to football games, playing sports, you know, getting laid. That, that was my school experience. Completely detached from, you know, any kind of outside reality concerning militarism or war or poverty and so forth. Then at 18, as I mentioned, I joined the United States Marine Corps. And I was even bright enough to join as a, as a rifleman in the infantry. They didn't even have to talk me into it, you know. So just so everyone is clear, and because this is something I'll probably periodically mention in the future, but I don't really want to, you know, dwell on it too much because it's something I've talked about 
at length in the past, but I didn't join for any specific, uh, uh, particularly uh, patriotic reason. You know, I didn't have a sense of duty to the country. I didn't have a sense of duty to Americans. I didn't feel a sense of duty to join the military after 9-11. My biggest concern on the day of 9-11 was whether or not we were going to get the school day off. I was a senior in high school working out in bodybuilding class first thing in the morning. Basically, I think it was called weight lifting and conditioning course. And we were watching it take place on the TV. You know, first plane crashes and everybody just sits there in silence. The second plane crashes, and then I think the media started to say, oh, well, this is a terrorist attack. We're under attack, all this other stuff. We, My friend and I went straight to the locker room and put on our clothes, went to our uh, main locker in the student hallway, and waited for our friends to get out of class so we could see whether or not we were going to get a half day so we could go to the beach, hang out, go to someone's house, smoke some pot, play some video games, whatever. That was my concern. You know, that'll give you an idea of, of sort of just how disconnected I was at 18 years old from what was happening in the real world. Um, it also gives you an idea of sort of how uninterested I was and remain in any sense of like this patriotism or nationalism or anything like this. But as I mentioned, you know, I wasn't interested in working in the steel mills. I had absolutely no academic future. Now, the only thing I had going for me at the time was I was playing a lot of baseball and I was hoping maybe, just maybe, some Division three or community college would offer me a program to come play, uh, even with my grades being what they were. And then, you know, my senior year, I fractured my wrist. I think I was sliding into second base. Fractured my left wrist, and there goes your senior year. There goes your chances of, you know, showing any kind of scouts, how good you are, etc. And... Um, that was it for me. You know, the choice was sort of already made. My friend came home from boot camp. We were finishing our senior year of high school, and I joined the Marine Corps. And that I went to boot camp in September of 2002, and the timing was perfect. So boot camp, September 2002, boot camp, Marine Corps boot camp is about 13 weeks long. Um, came home at the beginning of June in 2002. Spent about, a, I think, two weeks, two or three weeks at home. Then went off on January 1st to the School of Infantry training. Uh, boot camp I went to in MCRD San Diego. School of Infantry training I went to in Camp Pendleton in California, just outside of San Diego for those who aren't familiar. And there I started to have questions. You know, my boot camp experience was pretty clear cut. It was, you know, I was in great shape at the time. I was lifting weights, running regularly, um, in absolutely excellent, excellent physical condition. So none of that was a problem, but you know, mentally, okay. Yes. I would say, of course, as most people say, it's the cliche thing to say, you know, men, it's a very, you know, it's mentally difficult to get through boot camp, blah, blah, blah. But you know, I, I just watched a documentary on Netflix called the Barkley marathons where people are supposed to complete 100 miles of 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 a race 20 or I'm sorry 520 mile circles in the mountains of Tennessee 
much more difficult than anything we ever – I mean 100 times more difficult than anything we had to do physically or I think mentally in boot camp or in any of our military training. Uh, so that being said, you know, boot camp was pretty easy, I thought. Got out of boot camp. And, you know, my only complaint in boot camp, to be honest with you, was I was – I sort of pictured Marines as being like big and, you know, strong, muscular people and – uh, it was nothing like that. You know, you see Marines, some Marines are, you know, five foot five, 130 pounds. Other Marines are like six foot three, 130 pounds. You know, you got Marines who are like overweight Marines and, you know, and I'm not trying to body shame anyone. That's the last thing I need to do is get in trouble on the first day of the program. But I'm just saying like, you know, it is not what people expect. You know, you see these commercials, you see these movies, you see these documentaries about Marines and they always pick the, the square jawed, you know, extremely stern and burly and muscular and, uh, you know, tightly shaven haircut, you know, uniform pressed out. Those are the people that people think of when they think of Marines. When I got to boot camp, I saw a bunch of people who probably couldn't make the second team on the football team. You know, they couldn't even make the junior varsity team, let alone the varsity team on a football team. And I thought to myself, Okay, here's here's the sort of my first lesson that I was, you know, lied to. I was like, okay, you were lied to, and not only were you lied to, but you were dumb enough to buy into this idea and into this image that Marines are these big, tough, strong guys and all this other crap. Um that was my that was sort of the first lesson was coming out of boot camp. Then I came to the school of infantry. And at 18 years old, you know, Right outside of San Diego, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be fun. I've already made it through boot camp. People are going to treat me better. They treat you worse in the School of Infantry than they treat you in boot camp. Now, not everyone goes to the School of Infantry. The people who go to the School of Infantry are people who signed up in the military to be in the infantry. If you signed up to, say, um, be in the motor pool, like you were going to be a mechanic for uh, Humvees or for seven-ton trucks or five-ton trucks or so forth, you would go to a specific course after boot camp that would teach you how to do that. You wouldn't go to the School of Infantry course. The School of Infantry course is meant specifically for people who join the infantry. And as such, you deal with sort of the craziest of the crazies. You know, you're dealing with people who pretty much at a time when we knew for sure that we were going to go to war, the people who joined at that – people who were in the infantry at that time either A, couldn't make it anywhere else – you know, they just couldn't, didn't have the test score. So, of course, the lowest scores become bullet sponges. And just to be clear, that's what we used to refer to ourselves as. You know, if you're in the infantry, you're a bullet sponge. Send us in in waves, let people get killed, especially the Marines. Several people get killed. Then other units come in and mop up afterwards. I mean, that's, you have to be pretty, either pretty ignorant, as I would say I was, or you have to be pretty jacked up on, American patriotism and other militaristic forms of ideology to want to put yourself in that position, especially in 2003 and especially in January 2003, two months, well, two months and 19 days before uh, the United States and its Western and allies invaded and occupied Iraq. So School of Infantry training is finished. All, I mean, maybe I'll go back in the future you know, future shows, I could, I'm sure I'll pick up anecdotes and probably even interview some folks that I served with in the Marine Corps, uh, which I think people will find very interesting. And all of whom 
uh, that what I would have on the program are, you know, are in, involved and interested in many different things, whether that be music, you know, documentary films, writing, art, etc. So I'd love to have those people on the program because uh, they'll give people a different perspective. I think it's important for people to hear from a wide range of veterans because there's far too many sort of, you know, archetypes out there and they don't hold up most of the time. So we finished the school of infantry and sit around at a place called Camp Margarita. And uh, there are no margaritas there, but it's called Camp Margarita in Camp Pendleton, California, and waited to go to Kuwait to then be shipped to Iraq. And during my first experience overseas, I was – so we were there. It was perfect. It was perfect timing for exactly when the war started. And when I got in country, it was no less than I think two months later or three months later – that my mother had a brain aneurysm. So I was sent home on a Red Cross message to come home and ostensibly to take care of my mother, but really I sort of extended that just to have time with family and friends and so on. And plus, at that point, I was asking major questions about my experience in the Marine Corps. And this was my first introduction to psychedelics. So here I am, a Midwestern Rust Belt kid. At most of the parties that I went to, I mean, there were like kids who were doing LSD and mushrooms and other stuff when I was in high school, but I never really got into that. When I was young, before I went to the Marine Corps, the only things that I did were drink alcohol and smoke some pot. And obviously, you know, have a cigarette here now and then. After I got out of the Marine Corps, or after being in the Marine Corps, Shit, probably less than a year or two. I could probably say that I've done almost every major drug uh, known to to man and uh, done it in excess. And I think a lot of the Marines I was with would attest to that, as you'll hear in the future. And, okay, some of that is good. Some of that is bad. What was good for me and the psychedelic experience being much different than, you know, doing something like cocaine or whatever or having, an al- you know, a glass of alcohol um, – much different experience. Came home at the time that summer of 2003. My friends were coming home. All of my friends, for the most part, my good friends at the time, were coming home from their first year at university. And many of them were taking humanities courses. So I was learning all of this amazing stuff. You know, here I am, home on a Red Cross message to take care of my mom. Just got back from being overseas. My head is like a tornado of craziness. I can't, you know, I'm. Don't know up from down, left from right. Thought my mom was going to die less than a week ago. Thought I was going to die uh, a little more than a week ago. You know, all of these things are on my mind. I'm dealing with mortality. I'm, th- I'm dealing with, you know, image of myself. What, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a man what, in the society? Uh, do I really want to be a Marine? Do I really want to kill people? Those were the thoughts I was having at that time. So pretty heavy thoughts for uh, a 19-year-old to be having, I think, in this society. Pretty, pretty heavy thoughts to have to deal with in this society. Now, around the world, people are dealing with those thoughts as early as five, six, seven years old. Leaving that aside, at the time, my friends who were coming home from college were introducing me to Howard Zinn, uh, you know, Martin Luther King's writings counterculture of the 1960s, so people like Hunter S. Thompson and Kurt Vonnegut. And, of course, what came with that 
and I should add the music as well. You know, I had a, I still have a great friend, Mitch Nelson, who is probably the, I would say the best or the greatest. What would you say the, the greatest Grateful Dead aficionado in my life? And you know, the guy's thirty-one years old, so he didn't grow up in that era. Just a tremendous fan and knows the history and what it was connected to and hate Ashbury and so on and so forth. And he turned me on to some of this really good literature. And he also, you know, these folks also is the first time that we started to experiment with psychedelics, specifically psychedelic mushrooms. After having some of those experiences, you know, after crying my eyes out, after reflecting on my life, I was pretty convinced that I didn't want to go back to the Marine Corps. However, I will say that in military training, you develop such a friendship, such a relationship with the people that you're with that I guess I couldn't fathom at the time just leaving or staying home and never go going back to where I was stationed, which is 29 Palms, California, the unit I was with and assigned at the time and remained through the end of my Marine Corps was the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, uh, Alpha Company and 3rd Platoon. So I decided to go back. I went back to my unit, waited for them to return from the their first deployment. They came back from Iraq. Everyone thought the war was over. The news media was saying it. The, I think even obviously the president at the time, Bush, said it. Hey, you know, mission accomplished. Everything's cool. We're going home. It wasn't long after that that people within the unit started to hear rumblings about us going back to Iraq. Now, to make a long story short, we had several months. This is the fall of 2003. So we had about 10 months to prepare to leave for the second deployment, which was going to happen in August of 2004. So we left in August, trained. Everybody's getting drunk, doing drugs all of the time. I mean, you know, we can go back and tell those stories. I, For people who want a quick cultural reference, I think the film Jarhead does a really good job of explaining and showing what Marine Corps life is like outside of the combat zone. So that's what was happening leading up to the second deployment. Then a friend of mine, a great friend of mine, uh, Vic, from Kentucky, came from a Southern Baptist family. This is the first gentleman who turned me on to Bill Hicks. This is the first gentleman who, you know, first person to turn me on to, to the music of Tool, Perfect Circle, and, you know, really great cinema, Stanley Kubrick films, and, you know, David Lynch films, and the, these were things that I was not privy to, you know, being a sort of standard American, you know, sort of sports playing kid. You know, I didn't even think about those kind of things. And, you know, so, but Vic was of the kids in school who actually were doing something interesting with their time, you know, like learning about culture and so forth. So he turned me on to these things. And two weeks before the second, our second deployment, he took me to the San Diego movie theater to see Michael Moore's film, Fahrenheit 9-11. This was two weeks before we deployed for our second deployment to Iraq. At this time now, I'm 19 years old. I'm sorry, I'm 20 years old seeing this film for the first time. And it absolutely changed my life. It is, again, sort of a cliche thing to say, but 
there are very few experiences, particularly singular experiences, that I could cite as being as important as what that film was to me at the time in my life. I was having major questions, experimenting with these psychedelics, asking who I was, where I was, what this experience was all about. What did I want out of life? Was I ready to die for this cause? Was I ready to kill for this cause? And here comes Michael Moore's film, you know, to contextualize some of this and to give me a more specifically political critique, you know, much more substantial political critique than I had at the time. And that, if I could name a moment, it was a major turning point in my life. Now, my second deployment, or in the unit's second deployment to Iraq, when people got there, we were in western Iraq, Al-Qaim, in the Al-Anbar province, about 5 to 10 miles east of the Syrian border and just south of the Euphrates River. Uh, an area that, by the way, is controlled by ISIS from day one. So everywhere we patrolled on that second deployment has been utterly controlled by ISIS since the beginning of or the inception of ISIS, etc. Those were the experiences that I, that we encountered after seeing that film. You know, so for me, it was seeing the film, coming to Iraq, and saying, "Oh my God, what am I doing here? I can't be here. I don't believe in this." And then still going through a nine-month deployment. And, you know, in the midst of that deployment was unfortunate enough to have to kill people, as I've talked about at length in the past and something I don't really plan on bringing up a bunch during this program, something I've written about, something I've testified to Congress about. Um, many of my good friends, you know, being killed, three of my really good friends. And the torture the indiscriminate shooting at civilians. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And for those who are interested, all you have to do is Google the winter soldier hearings. That's Iraq veterans against the war winter soldier hearings. And you will see and hear everything you need to see and hear about the war in Iraq. And that hopefully will help people understand and has helped people understand how a group as vicious and as radical and as wild as ISIS could spring um, from the deserts of Iraq. You know, a big part of this is blowback and the blowback as a result of the insanity, the gruesome madness that we inflicted, the U.S. empire and the people of the United States, whether involved or not involved, in your name, in our name, inf inflicted on the people of Iraq. And I didn't know what to do while I was there. I mean, I wanted to leave. I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to get out of the situation as, I guess, as best as I could. I didn't know what to do. So I finished the deployment, and I came home and was dealing with all kinds of issues, um, you know, psychological issues, issues with the military. Checked myself into a VA hospital, the northern VA hospital in, in Chicago, and spent uh, several months there as an inpatient in the uh, mental ward, in the mental health facility, which also helped color my experiences. Uh, you know, and, and in some ways it was much like the, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I wish 
the book hadn't been written so I could write about my experiences in the mental ward at the North Chicago VA <laughs> back in 2005. It was a pretty crazy time. Uh, they, you know, A lot of the doctors didn't really know how to deal with people who were coming back with PTSD. The last major war we had fought in the United States, remember, was you know it ended in 1975. So it had been, what, 10, 20, almost 30 years. It was 30 years since a major war had ended. So it, there was a 30-year gap, not only in the military, but also in the VA system. For people who actually knew how to deal with guys and women who are coming home who had seen a lot of their friends killed, who have seen civilians killed, who'd picked up body parts, who you know killed people, um, it's been a long time for people in those institutions since they had seen something like that. So I came home, checked myself into the VA, went through their drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. The doctors at the North Chicago VA recommended that I was discharged from the Marine Corps. My unit in 29 Palms disagreed. They disagreed because, of course, they needed bodies to send on a third deployment. So they sent me back uh, to 29 Palms. And when I got to 29 Palms, I refused to pick up a weapon. I basically told them, you know, to piss off, told them they weren't going to do anything to me. The worst they were going to do is throw me in jail. And that I wasn't picking up a weapon, I wasn't going to the armory, and that I wasn't going to step on another airplane to go to Iraq no matter what. They were going to have to knock me out and take me or drug me and take me, but they weren't taking me, uh, you know, on my own volition. So you can imagine, you know, at that point they didn't really know what to do. They're, they were at one point discharging people who were refusing to go on deployments, but then they figured out that once Marines found out that the units were discharging people who were behaving badly, a bunch of Marines started to behave badly so they could be discharged and not sent on another deployment. So they were trying other tactics, you know, let's break people's rank down, you know, let's bust their rank down, give them a lower rank, let's give them, you know, terrible duty stations or shitty jobs to do. And for me, that meant sort of all of the above, you know, uh, not, you know, they didn't bust my rank down, but they kept me at a low rank when they should have promoted me, gave me jobs like filling sandbags or lining rocks up for hours at a time. And, you know, all of this in anticipation of, I guess what, I mean, they thought I was going to change my mind. I mean, I never changed my mind at that point. It was, I was so solidly against the war and so committed to doing political work that I simply couldn't wait to get out of the military just so I could start being active. So they eventually, on a technicality, they discharged me from the Marine Corps. And all it was was a technicality with paperwork concerning the drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. So I didn't go on a third deployment. They didn't really punish me. I didn't spend any time in the brig. And so on January 27th, I was a free man. And that started an entirely new chapter in my life. You know, so at 21 years old, I came home, started ironworking uh, just to make some money. And because I was going crazy, I came home. I was, I think, sitting around my parents' house for like two weeks, bored out of my mind. Everybody was either working or back in school and I had nothing to do. And I was used to waking up every single day for four, for almost four years with, you know, 10, 20, 30 of your friends around, you know, people smoking, cigarettes, waking up, having coffees together, eating breakfast together, you know, bullshitting about the night before, telling jokes, whatever the, whatever the deal may be. But that, that was the way it was for four years. 
you know, so you become institutionalized. And the closest thing for me to find something similar to that was to join the Iron Workers Union and to wake up every day and go to a job site and pretty much do the same thing except for, you know, build highways and buildings instead of uh, going to the range to shoot stuff or doing drills for urban combat scenarios. You know, it might, it might sound a little different, but I, you know, I, I actually think both institutions are, are very similar. And, and the culture, and that's interesting too, because the culture that both of those institutions produce are, is very similar. And a lot of that is destructive. That's something we could get into another day. So I'm ironworking in 2006. My father tells me there's a political event at Valparaiso University. One half of the panel is for the war. The other half of the panel is going to argue against the war. So I go to Valparaiso University sweating, tired from work, um, you know, nervous, unsure whether or not I was going to say anything publicly. And by the end of the event, they asked for comments and questions from the audience. And I think I was probably the first person to raise my hand. I was an anxious, you know, wreck. And I raised my hand and I stood up and I said, look, I'm a United States, former United States Marine, served in the infantry, was in Iraq. Here's the years. Here's what I did. And I have to wholeheartedly agree with the side of the panel who is against the war. These people have it 100% correct. At that moment, of course, everyone in the room turned around and looked, some smiling and clapping, some giving me sort of the look of death. And I met a gentleman by the name of Nick Egnance who came running across the room with his Veterans for Peace hat on. And he said, hey, Vince, um, we've got a rally on Saturday. Come and check it out. It's in Highland. It's at, the I think, the flag, memorial, flags of the memorial. I forget what it's called. But it's basically a little area where they have flags, memorials set up for previous wars. And the local anti-war movement had been protesting there every Saturday. And so I showed up, and that sealed the deal. After that, I met uh, many members from Iraq Veterans Against the War, immediately became a member of Veterans for Peace and Iraq Veterans Against the War, and spent much of 2006, pretty much all of 2007, all of 2008, and all of 2009 working with the anti-war movement. Now, the anti-war movement, unfortunately, sort of disappeared in 2008. That's a conversation we'll have in later programs as well you know people went home they thought wrongly of course you know they said oh obama he's the peace candidate oh my goodness you know the democrats are in office now everything's okay obama's in office now everything's okay and you know as we've seen that this just this is was total rubbish then and it's even more ridiculous for people to argue that now but unfortunately what that meant for the movement was that there was no longer an anti-war movement to work with so i you know, sort of transition into doing radio work. Uh, had the opportunity come out of nowhere. It was with a station, I think it's called WIMS here in Michigan City, Indiana. And from 2010 to 2012, uh, did the Veterans Unplugged radio program and started traveling, uh, was promoting a couple of documentary films in Australia, connected with a lot of different movements around the country, environmental movement, labor movement started to work with other movements in the United States. And that eventually led to going to Ferguson, Missouri, a couple weeks after Mike Brown was shot and killed. And that experience led me to start writing. 
so after I mean I was writing before that and I think I put out some tran I for a long time had put out transcribed interviews I was doing from the radio program you know and sending them to progressive sites left wing sites and so forth but my trip to Ferguson two weeks after Mike Brown was killed in the summer of 2000 August of 2014 really kick started my writing career in a lot of ways because after I came home from that event I just was filled with so much anger and there were so many thoughts that I couldn't properly express vocally for people. And sometimes it works the other way around. You know, Sometimes you could properly express things vocally and you can't write them down. And other times writing them down is easier than expressing them verbally. And I decided to write about that experience. And I, I forget which outlet I sent the essay to. But afterwards, I was contacted by Michael Albert from Z Communications who asked me if I would write for Telesur English. And that is essentially how the writing career began. I started to write for Telesur English, wrote for Truth Out, wrote for, oh goodness, pretty much every progressive outlet you can imagine, ZNet, uh, Counterpunch, and so forth. And that's what I've been doing here you know, for the last several years. Now, on this show, we'll go back through all of that. I mean, we'll interview people from IVAW that I used to work with. We'll interview labor organizers and all of the people I had mentioned previously in the show. And my interests are wide-ranging. You know, So we'll be talking about ecology, ideology, political activism, art, culture, music, film. We'll even probably talk a little bit about sports. And I will have guests nonstop here. Uh, for the program and the format will be pretty similar to today except for in the future i hope to have you know take calls from guests i know this is the first day of the program in the future i hope to take calls from guests uh and we, i mean we'll be doing all kinds of uh reporting even from local campaigns you know we just had major events here in chicago we had ma we've got major campaigns coming up in gary indiana and I'll be talking with organizers and activists from around the world as well that I know. I would like to talk about the elections, obviously it being an election year. And today, you know, the big news, of course, just to mention a couple things, if people are interested, you know, it's the, the death of MLK, something I think we should all keep in mind, this history of white supremacy and the three evils that Dr. King spoke about are three topics that we will focus on in this program extensively and that will be militarism capitalism and racism and all three you know unfortunately on full display in a region like northwest indiana also the panama papers i don't know what to say about these leaks folks i mean yes were the details of the wikileaks very important yes were the details of snowden's leaks very important yes and i'm sure the details of the panama paper leaks are very important these leaks are telling us what we've known all along. So it's either naive or disingenuous for people to act surprised when we find out that millionaires and billionaires and corrupt politicians and their families and their cohorts are hiding billions and trillions of dollars overseas in offshore accounts. None of us should be surprised. The question we should all ask ourselves is, what are we going to do about it? Because right now, Yes, there are tremendous progressive movements taking place. Yes, there are people mobilizing. But there is not a movement, nor is there a movement on the horizon that is capable and willing to take on 
the major interests in this country and the economic and militaristic interests in this country will kill us. That's what people need to understand. In order to take on the military industrial complex, in order to take on Goldman Sachs, we will have to be willing to sacrifice ourselves. And that's not some kind of call to martyrdom or anything like this. The point is, is that you're going to have to sacrifice your time, probably going to have to sacrifice some of your sanity, and probably have to sacrifice, in some cases, your well-being, physical well-being, to stop these entities. And on a day like today, you know, the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, I think it's really important for us to understand that you know, sharing uh, memes on social media and hashtagging this and taking pictures and showing up to rallies and fundraisers and all of that, that's all fine and, and great. But in order for us to combat the very real and evil powers that exist in this world, the people who are willing to do so are going to need to truly sacrifice. And we're going to talk about all of that in, my, in this program, Meditations and Molotovs. We're, we're going to meditate on what needs to happen, what the problems are, reflect on what those things mean for us moving forward. And just as importantly, we will be talking about what people are doing on the ground. How are we going to oppose these powerful interests and how are we going to create something truly different? So that's what I hope to do with the program. I hope folks who listened today enjoy, enjoyed it. Again, this is Meditations and Molotovs with Vincent Emanuele, your host on the PRN program. That's prn.fm. This will be every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. East Coast Time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast, prn.fm. Also, if you want to call in in the future, take this number down, 888-874-4888. I want to thank Jason and the folks at Progressive Radio Network. This is your host, Vince Emanuele. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs, and I hope you stay tuned, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic.
Girlie.